Welcome to the 426th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Sharon Harrigan, author of the new novel, Half. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Sharon Harrigan, author of the new novel, Half. In 2017, Sharon's book, Playing with Dynamite, a memoir, was published. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Happy to be here. Great. If someone listening hasn't heard about your novel half yet, how would you describe the novel? Great question. So the most remarkable thing, the most unusual thing about it is that it's told in a first-person plural point of view, the we voice. The characters who narrate the story are two identical twins, Artis and Paula, and they speak as if they're one person. They speak as if they are thinking the same thoughts, doing the same things, always together. We never see them apart for the first two-thirds of the book. And then in part three, that and it, this is not too much of a spoiler, those, the voice is cut in half. That's where the title comes from. And something terrible happens. They discover a family secret. They both have divergent views about something, about their father and their culpability for his death and what what he did to them when they were children. And that breaks them, that disagreement is so stark that it breaks them in half. And then the rest of the story is them trying to find their way back to each other. And that might sound technical, I'm talking about point of view and things like that. But my goal um, is for that, all that stuff in the background, all that stuff about how the story is made to disappear. And so that when you're reading it, you're just thinking that you're reading about two people that are this incredible connection. They're as close as it's possible for people to be in a platonic relationship. And that has these incredible rewards, but also these incredible drawbacks too. So it's both this rich experience and a claustrophobic experience at the same time. And by by giving this extreme version of, of a relationship, I'm hoping to show in sharp relief what all of our relationships are like, what it means to have human connection, and how beautiful and rewarding that can be, and how satisfying, and also how much when we care about someone, we open ourselves up to pain. And I knew you would ask this question, what is your book about? So I was thinking, how could I say it in a different way? And I was thinking about life in the pandemic and that I think we are all at home. School is now home. Work is home. Play is home. And the people in our pod, whether they're a family or whoever, are that, that, that that's, we're very close. We really aren't able to, to have separate experiences anymore. And that's really a wonderful, beautiful, satisfying thing, but sometimes it can get to be claustrophobic. And then I have friends who, who live alone and who really are alone all the time, with, you know, Zooming it with people for work. And, and I think we're living this experience of the beauty of intimacy and the claustrophobia of it sometimes as well that I fore, foretold. I didn't know it would happen <laughs> when I was writing my novel. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write half? Yes. So it's not autobiographical. I did that already with my memoir. But the seed, the, the beginning of it was something that happened in my life. In the beginning of chapter one, there, the twins are five years old. And they're pretending that they're babies. And they have this little secret language that they speak to each other. And they say, I'm half. How old are you? 
I'm half too. At first we met, we were, we'd been alive half a year, six months, but later half no, mo- no, no longer meant, stood for anything, half empty, half full. So it came from this idea, this memory that my brother and I, who's, he's a year and a half older than me, we're not twins, that we used to pretend to be babies and we used to say, I'm half. So yeah, the word half comes up a lot. It was a kind of problematic title, but I kept feeling like there were so many ways in which it was uh, appropriate that I kept coming back to it. So it came from that and this idea that closeness, because my brother and I were very close and it seemed normal back then, but now as I look back, it feels almost magical. Like my twins, we had some trauma in our childhood. In our case, My father died when I was seven in a mysterious, bizarre accident, and it was something we couldn't really talk about with anybody. We couldn't really talk about it with each other, my brother and I, but we didn't have to. We just understood what each other was going through. And and looking back, I think it was almost like like reading our minds, reading our body language, just being together. That's powerful. So do you remember the first fiction that you ever wrote? The first fiction I ever wrote. I started out... Um, as a writer, as a poet, and didn't really start writing fiction until um, much later. I did get my MFA in poetry in 2012, and I wrote a novel for that, which um, was a novel that taught me how to write a novel. But I, so I guess maybe that was the first thing I wrote. It's about a coming-of-age story of a girl growing up in Detroit, where I grew up, and not being able to pass her driving test, like in Motor City, not being able to drive which I did eventually actually learn to drive. So it's not really about me. So what did that first novel teach you? Oh, so many things. I think that I came from poetry thinking that what mattered was the beauty of the sentences. And I came out from my MFA and from writing that novel, realizing that was only a very small part of it. Um, and, And in fact, getting trapped by the idea that the sentences mattered so much got in the way that you can't see the forest for the trees. So I really had to learn about plot and how it's like a machine that you have to build and you have to build this momentum and you have to build a sense of consequences because this happened, then that happened. And then because that happened, then this happened. And uh, yeah, so it's setting up the whole architecture of it. I think in poems, there's architecture too. There's certainly a lot of really strict forms, but it's had to learn about forward momentum and suspense. And, uh, and I think I uh, was still learning how to do that when I was writing this novel, Half, because um, in my first draft, each it was a coming age story, and each story, each kind, each chapter was like a self-contained story. And then at the end, I had to go back and put in the architecture, put in the make it a machine, and 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 make it something that really gets readers to turn the pages. Which so that's that was the hardest thing for me to do: the momentum, the suspense. And I'm really thrilled when I was really thrilled when I got reviews. I think my first review from forward reviews and it said it's gripping and readers won't be able to turn the pages fast enough and I thought yes because that was like the hardest thing for me to figure out so yes I did it (laughs) so how different was it writing your memoir that was published in 2017 it was I don't think anybody writes a memoir who doesn't who can help it. So writing a memoir was really hard and I wouldn't advise it. I teach memoir, so I'm joking. Lots of people I think have, can't help it. <laughs> Lots of people have really compelling reasons to want to write their memoirs as I did too. But it's, it's an extra layer that you have to deal with being aware of, that you're writing about real people and you don't want to hurt their feelings and you, you want to be um, truthful and honest, but you don't want to destroy relationships that are important to you. But as far as the 
technical stuff, I do think that there's a lot that's related that the memoirs, at least my memoir, you know, I put it together the way I would put together a novel, that there's story and I still want people to turn the pages to find out what's going to happen next. In my case, I really was, there was quite a bit of suspense when I was writing it because I didn't know how it would turn out. It was, it was a search for answers about how my father died and how he lost his right um, hand and forearm when I was, before I was born, when I was 18, playing with dynamite, what playing with dynamite meant. And all these other things. I had all these questions. And I just, so I didn't know how it was going to end. And I decided to let the reader share with me the suspense that I felt as I was trying to find out the answers. And I would let them um, know piece by piece as I found things out and, and feel the surprises along with me. So I think that's what I try to do in my novel, too, is except for it's my narrators, my twins stand in for me. But they're finding things out, too, at the same time the reader is. And so I'm trying to mimic what it feels like for the characters to have the reader have that same experience. You mentioned that plot is like a machine. I'm curious what your writing process was for your novel half. Did you do a lot of outlining or sketching out the plot or did you write more organically? I went through a bunch of drafts and I think the first draft I was really just thinking is it spans a long time period. It's a coming of age and I was thinking and each chapter is like one year. It starts first chapters there are five, the second chapter there's six, etc. And I was inspired by the movie um, Boyhood for that. And uh, so my original draft, I was just thinking, like, what are the most defining moments looking back at both my childhood, but also just like my kids, especially my daughter, who's around the, the age of my twins. They were born in 2000. She's born in 2003. And they, so what does it mean to be 10? What does it mean to be 12? And, and then writing some scenes that would show that. So I did that first. And then I thought, no, my agent thought it's, <laughs> it needs a backbone. It, it can't just be episodic. You need to have some you know, questions at the beginning that the reader doesn't get answered until the end. And, but, and of course, and that the narrators don't get answered until the end. So I actually, after that, I superimposed a through line, which is that the, the girls come as adults, come back to Michigan for their father's funeral, and then they revisit their child. There's a reason they're looking back in their childhood. They want to find out who's culpable. Is it their fault? What happened? Is it their father's fault? Did they were they right to do what they did to him? And they're looking for for clues. And so the the coming of age is still there, but there's there's a there's a, a through line, a frame from beginning to end. And I think that's what people mean when they say that they were turning the pages fast. That they really like at the beginning there were these questions that they really wanted to find the answers to. So they kept reading. Did I answer your question? Yeah. You mentioned your MFA. I was curious what your MFA experience was like. I had a fantastic MFA experience. I was um, skeptical because I did a low residency MFA and I was skeptical about how that would work. Because I already had a family and a husband with a job, he couldn't, academic job, he couldn't move and kids were in school. I knew I couldn't do a traditional program. So I only applied to low residency ones. And I knew someone already who was in the Pacific University low residency program in Oregon, and she loved it. So that's where I went. And I had, it just exceeded all my expectations. I um, just wished that I had done it sooner because I learned so much. I learned so much through reading. I was also skeptical of that. They wanted us to read 20 books a semester and do what they call commentaries, analyzing for craft of 12 of them. So there's a lot of reading and a lot of analyzing of reading. And I thought, I 
just want to learn how to write, not to read. But I was wrong. <laughs> you have to learn how to read really clear, carefully and closely before you can learn how to write. And then I just had some fantastic advisors, Pam Houston, Benjamin Percy, Jack Driscoll, Bonnie Jo Campbell. I worked with a little bit too. So it was great. I've, yeah, I, I know a lot of people who've been to MFA programs and some think that they were really good and some don't. Kind of controversial topic. <laughs> so given your success with your memoir and now your novel half, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels or memoirs? Oh, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of advice that I give to my students all the time. Let's see, from Ben Percy, I, one thing that I am always thinking of is get into the scene as late as you can, get out of the scene as early as you can. And he really advised us to watch movies and, and TV shows because they do this very, it's very clear how they're just dropping us in and then cutting away. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And I think as, as a writer, I always felt like I had to set up so much. And he said, never have your characters getting from one place to another. Just put them there. Put them there when the important thing is happening. And that's something that with memoir too, it's hard, I think, for people to embrace that idea at first because they just really want to be comprehensive because they're writing about the truth and they think somehow leaving things out is not true. And from Jack Driscoll, love your characters, be a compassionate God. I really had to think about that when I was writing this novel because not all the characters are, are really sympathetic, especially the father character, Ken's. He could have veered into the territory of being a villain, two-dimensional, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make him human and to, to even when he did bad things, to treat him with love. And learning from Joan Didion said she learned how to write, she learned style from just copying other writers, like cop taking a notebook and copying, I think in her case it was Hemingway, in longhand. So I used to do that. I would take a, an author whose voice I really loved and sometimes before a writing session just take out my notebook and write a page from the book and like just feel those rhythms in my hand and in my head. But I guess if who, who I... Did you copy? I copied... <laughs> So a book that's that really inspired me to write half is uh, We the Animals by Justin Torres. And so I copied that sometimes. And what is it called? The Buddha in the Attic by Juliet Suka. And then a bunch of poems like Seamus Haney is one of my favorite for just sound. And Joan Didion, actually. <laughs> so like I'm sort of copying Hemingway if she copied Hemingway. But yeah, for beginning writers, I would say... It, it's to read that. And I know because, as I said, I was reluctant to think that was part of my training. And I find with my students now, even they're reluctant to, I just assign them all to like how to choose a memoir 
to read and then report on. And, and to report, like after you read this, how is that going to change? What have you learned from it that you're going to use in your own work? And thinking about a book in that way, just completely, it's, they were blown away by how useful that was. And they didn't think it would be. Yeah, read. Read and realize it's going to take a lot of time and be patient with yourself. And don't. And when you read something that you love, don't feel bad that you're not writing at that level yet because maybe that writer, maybe it took 10 drafts to get there. And also maybe it took 10 years to get there. So you're in it for the long haul and be kind to yourself. So what books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read recently that you enjoyed? I've been reading a lot lately in the pandemic. I um, I joined a group of authors publishing in the pandemic. I think you've probably had some of those people on your show. And so it's been fun to read each other's work. And uh, there's, there's just too, ma- too many to name, but I'll name a few. You Again, the novel by Demer Immergut. I Will Never Forget You, beautiful, uh, weird kind of Black Mirror-ish story collection by Mary South. An amazing memoir by Rose Anderson called The Heart and Other Monsters. And a book that just came out by a friend of mine, Deborah Reed, called Pale Morning Sun, Pale Morning Light with Violet Swan, which I just finished last night. And it made me cry. It's just gorgeous. And it does something that's really hard to do. It's about a 93-year-old female artist based on a real woman's life. And in her end days, she relives her life and how she got there. And it's like the history of the 20th century. But what Deborah Reed does so well is she gives us this really believable, credible, satisfying, happy ending, which I just feel like sometimes we, we all need. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So are you working on another novel now? I am, yes. I have a novel on submission that my agent sent out on Monday, so I'm crossing my fingers about that. And then I have another one that's in the kind of beginning stages about a teenage boy and his relationship to birds. So that's what I'll say about it. <laughs> great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel half and your memoir? My website is uh, SharonHarrigan.net. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Sharon Harrigan, author of the new novel, Half. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Sharon, thanks for doing this interview. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. It's been great talking to you. Great. So yeah, so that that went well. So if you could just leave your browser. Now, stay tuned as Sharon Harrigan reads from her novel, Half. Hi, I'm Sharon Harrigan. I'm going to read from Half, a little bit from the prologue and beginning in parts one, two, and three. Prologue, Christmas 2030. We wedged mom between us. Her sharp hips bore into ours as we sat on the hard pew. She nodded toward the blizzard raging on the other side of the stained glass and said, it's your dad. He's making it snow? As identical twins, we spoke in unison. People responded to us, at least, as if we did. Mom chewed her index finger and kept quiet. We took that as a yes. Apparently, she was still claiming Dad controlled everything and the weather, even though we had just flown in for his funeral. Preposterous, we told each other, with our shoulders and palms. Whether we meant the weather or the funeral, we didn't say. In the twelve years since we had moved away, monster storms had become the norm. Planes were no longer even grounded for them. The eulogies droned on. Ms. Rosen, our fourth-grade teacher, swished up to the pulpit, 
butterfly tattoos sagging under stretched skin on her now ample arms, charm bracelet tinkling. She praised God and Dad in the same sentence. Next came Wild Pete, Dad's old buddy from his days of leading hunting tours in Alaska, his squirrely mustache muffling a gruff voice. He told the origin story of Dad's nickname, Moose. We had heard tales about Pete all our lives, but had secretly suspected he wasn't real. Our childhood best friends described a man whose beard never grayed, whose shot never missed, who was always there. Always where, we asked, only in our heads, in a voice that sounded more like the snarky teens we had been than the 30-year-old moms we were now. We had prepared nothing. Mom could barely stand, let alone speak, but we, the daughters, should have represented the family. That's what everyone's eyes on us said. A young man with a slender purple tie and a square of hair on his flinty chin glared from the other side of the aisle. Mom sagged against the wooden pew, her face already slim from a lifetime of dieting turned gaunt, her still dark hair so thick that even in middle age she had enough to pilot high goddess style on her head, seemed to thin by the minute. A tiny lily tattoo wilted on the back of her neck. Even the beauty mark above her lips shrank. Our five-year-old sons, clutching plush hedgehogs and snapping their bow ties, sat on the other sides. Next to them, our husbands, lost in an incense fog. Tears would have been a relief, but we damned them back. Marco, we said it so low, it might have been telepathy. Polo, came our reply, barely audible. We reached over Mom to knock knuckles on each other's thighs. We fingered the single earring we each wore, a diamond stud. As long as we shared this pair, these secret codes, we thought we couldn't fall apart. At the reception, Wild Pete almost tore off our hands, pretending to shake them. Breath thick with chaw, he said, you're the ones who killed him. We slipped from Pete's grip, pushed outside, and leaned against the wall near the church basement steps, eyelashes weighted with snow. We didn't, we said. Then we did. How could he say such a thing? You mean, how could he know? We had to hold each other's coats to keep from falling with the snow. Gusts swirled at our ankles and snow hooped around our hips. We braced against the scratchy brick, gripping. Why did we do it? We asked each other. Because of what he did to us, every year of our lives. But we couldn't live with ourselves if we thought we had killed an innocent man. A jury of two, we had to decide if Dad deserved what we had done to him. The only evidence to review was our childhood. We clutched each other's hands for heat, our bodies so close we could imagine we were attached, Siamese, the way we had pretended to be so long ago. Spines and fetal curve, we rewound the tape of our lives in our heads, starting back at the age our own boys were now. Remember, we said, we had never meant to hurt anyone. And then the beginning of part one. We wanted to crawl back in time, even then. We were only five, but that wasn't young enough. The more we played this game, hovering outside our parents' door after dinner, trying to hear their mysterious bedroom sounds while pretending we didn't, the more we wanted to be babies again, or even to slip back into our mother's belly the way we slid into her bed those nights when Dad was away on a hunting trip. I'm half years old, we said. How old are you? I'm half, too. At first we meant we had been alive six months, just half a year. Later, half no longer stood for anything half empty, half full. We babbled and baby-talked the way our own children do now when they don't want us to understand. Our friend Nevea had a baby brother, and he was always sucking at his mother's breast, so we knew milk was food, milk was love. We were twin girls, born in 2000, the year of the golden dragon. 
Our dark bangs hung crooked, cut with the blunt scissors sometimes used for discipline. We listened through the hollow corridor as the mattress squeaked, wondering why our parents were jumping on the bed. They never let us. We were locked out of the one private room in the house. We wanted to walk in on them now, the way we liked to sneak in on Mom when she tried to escape from us in the bath, slinky and slippery as a mermaid. But even if the door hadn't been locked, we wouldn't have dared, not with Dad in there. He was a lion escaped from the zoo. He could hunt us down and eat us in our sleep. He roared and all his subjects scattered. He was king. So they're five years old. I'm going to skip on to beginning of part two when they're 18 and they leave home for college. All freshmen at U of M had to share a dorm. Of course, we chose to room with each other. We became Wolverines, members of our hall, our class, our school, or tried to. We played icebreaker games at orientation, but opted out of two truths and a lie. We danced with a drink in each hand at frat parties, only to find at the end of our favorite song that our cups had spilled on our feet. We read about the lives of other freshmen on social media. We heard them complain in the cafeteria and watched them on the diag. And then I'm going to skip on to the beginning of the last part when they're 30 years old and they come back home again because their fathers died and it picks up where the prologue left off. It started with the call that came the same time every year, come home. We could almost hear mom lean into the palm that held her cell, almost see her hand twisting a ringlet that had fallen from her bun, legs jiggling with enough nervous energy to light a window display. Please come home for Christmas. We wanted to make her happy, but we didn't want to see Dad. So we said, not this time, maybe next year. Our throats burned with the rawness of our lies. Mom told our sons that Michigan was a land of perpetual snow, so they begged us to take them there. She didn't admit that these snowstorms were monstrous. Ten years had passed since our meteorology professor said they would be. Not every place had warmed. In Michigan, the weather just became weirder. The state is even shaped like a giant mitten, Mom said. The boys spun around and around, littering the floor with shredded paper, shouting, White Christmas! Then we texted each other. Wish we could take the boys to Michigan. We could if Don was gone. The words were too terrible to say aloud or to tap out on our phones, but we couldn't stop the thought from creeping in that we wanted him out of the way. Not hunting, not working, but gone for good. And I don't want to give too much away, so we'll end there. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.